Well, for us, today is the Father's Day, because it's the first day of the week. To the culture around us, of course, though, it's just Father's Day, because it's the third Sunday in June. It's the day that we honor dads for their love and their providence, for their care and their compassion, for giving life to us, and give thanks and let them know how much we love them. But what about when fathers weren't so honorable? I imagine each and every one of us can think of times in our fathers' lives when they weren't that honorable. Even those of us who might claim to have had the best of fathers can can find character defects that have impacted us negatively and things that they did wrong. And I I think I had one of the greatest dads in all the world, and yet I can pinpoint some things that he did that, that have impacted me even now. Things that he did that were wrong, things that weren't so honorable. And in those situations, we can just tell folks, listen, everybody's human, nobody's perfect. Look for the good and honor them for the things that you can. But I'm not talking about those situations. I'm talking about much worse situations. When fathers really weren't honorable. I got to listen to one person speak one time. Never even met her father, her biological father. She was adopted. And when she finally did some research about her biological parents, found out that the reason she was given up for adoption was because her father had raped her mother. Not very honorable. I had a very good friend in college that used to tell me about what happened with his father, a womanizing alcoholic who used to beat his children repeatedly. He told me stories of crawling across the floor to get away from his dad while his dad beat him with a bicycle chain. By the way, did I mention that his father was a gospel preacher at the time? Back when I was in Texas, I got to go hear former Miss America, Marilyn Vanderburg, speak. Her father sexually abused her from the time she was five till the time she left home at 18. Sometimes fathers aren't all that honorable. And I can only imagine what a day like today must be for folks with fathers like that. And I hope with all of my heart that today you can give thanks to some fathers because of their love and their care and their concern, that you can honor fathers where they were honorable. But I want us to take some time today to talk to those, and I'm sure they're here, I'm sure that you're here. We had fathers that weren't so honorable, and I want to share with you what I think the Scripture says to you. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we love you because you are the awesome God who is our refuge and our rock and our redeemer. When all the world is against us, you are for us. And we know that no matter what we face, we can put our hand in yours and you will guide us through it and you will bring us out to eternal life on the other side if we will simply rest in you. Father, we are so glad that you are the perfect Father. And we're thankful for the fathers who look to you and use you as their guide, doing the best they can in their homes. We know that we all make mistakes and we pray that you would forgive us for those mistakes 
Help us to overcome them, to raise our children in a healthy way, in a godly way. Father, we pray so much for those children who have grown up in homes where fathers didn't do that. The fathers weren't honorable at all. Homes of neglect and abuse, turmoil and strife and trauma and dysfunction. We pray that you would be with the children brought up there, that they can look to you, gain their peace and their comfort and their spiritual and mental and emotional health from you. Father, we pray that you would be with those fathers, that they would repent, that they would recognize that they can find salvation in you, that Jesus' blood can cleanse them of their sins and set them free from them as well. Father, we pray that you be with us. Help us all to have understanding hearts, to strive to lift others up no matter what they face throughout their lives, that we can help turn folks to you, that you might be glorified. Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son we pray. Amen. The very first thing I think you need to recognize that the Bible says to you is your father's sins are not your fault. Your father's sins are not your fault. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. God said to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 18.20, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. Just as those whose fathers were impeccably righteous cannot take credit for his righteousness, neither can you, if your father was wicked and dishonorable, take the blame for that. It is not your fault. And yet I have no doubt that you might believe that it is. Perhaps if your father was abusive, sometimes he would have told you that it's your fault. That he doesn't mean to be this way, but you just cause it because he has to keep you in line or... And I'm not talking about proper biblical discipline. Hebrews chapter 12 points out that there's a place for discipline in the home. And there's no doubt that as children, we do things that are wrong and our parents have to discipline us. But there's a large difference between the discipline that is conducted biblically and properly, which Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11 tells us brings about the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's a big difference between that and the kind of abuse that does not bring about peaceful fruit of righteousness, but rather brings about despair and brokenness and the awful fruit of tragedy and harm and sometimes even death. If your father told you, that, oh, I don't mean to be like this, but I just can't help myself when you do these things, your father lied. It is not your fault. Your father sexually abused you. He may have said things like, hey, I just can't help myself. You're so beautiful. I just love you so much. It's not your fault. It's not your fault for being a woman. It's not your fault for being pretty. It's not your fault because you were developing physically. It's just not your fault. And if, God forbid, you were the son and abused in such a way, it was not your fault. 
It's not because you were born homosexual, as so many incest victims grow up believing. It just wasn't your fault. Ezekiel 18.20 points out that the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Your father sinned. That was his responsibility, not yours. God says, it's not your fault. And I'm sorry that someone in your life has probably told you things that made you believe it was your fault. And I'm sorry that in time to come, there will be other insensitive and ignorant people who say things that cause you to believe that it's your fault. But what I want you to realize is that when you stand before God in judgment, He will not lay your father's sins at your feet. People are ignorant and insensitive and make all kinds of mistakes about things that they don't understand. But you can take comfort that God understands. And God says, it's not your fault. Now, regrettably, one of the reasons that you probably believe it's your fault is because some of the people that you have told about what happened to you in your childhood probably said things like, well, why didn't you stop him? Why didn't you report him? Why didn't you tell someone? You need to understand that it was not your job to stop your father. Those who have said these things are ignorant. And if you have ever said these things to somebody, I hope that you will recognize the near psychological impossibility for a child to do the things you've told them they should have done. Think about this. We train our children up that their father is essentially God in their life. We tell them that their father is the authority and he is the rule in the house. We tell them that they're supposed to obey their father. Take a look at a child. Okay. Brian, come here for a second. Come here. Come here. I'm not going to beat you. That would be terrible in this sermon. All right, now look at this. If I decided I was going to beat this boy, what could he do about it? What could he do about that? You can go sit down, bud. Don't fall. Take a look at a child that looks at his dad. It's huge. And then expect him to stop his dad. You know, it's amazing. And then, in addition to that, by the way, children learn very quickly that adults believe another, other adults before they believe children. We stack the deck against our children and then blame them when they live the way we raised them. But in addition to that, I think the Bible demonstrates that it was not your responsibility to make your father stop. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 14, excuse me, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. It is not your responsibility to make somebody else live in fear and obedience and holiness. It is each person's responsibility to do that themselves. It was not your responsibility to make your father live in fear and holiness and obedience. That was his responsibility. The passage says, conduct yourselves in this way. Each one of us is responsible before God. It was not your fault, and it was not your responsibility to stop him. But then I also want you to consider the roles in the family that God has established. Look in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, the Scripture there says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It was your Father's job to bring you up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It was not your job to bring Him up in the, destru- in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do you see that? God didn't put you in your family as the child to be the one that teaches the parents how to behave. The parents are supposed to have figured that out, and they were supposed to be teaching you. And I'm so sorry that you had a father who did not live by that responsibility. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 15. In Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 15. Proverbs 22 and verse 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from it. Again, we see that there is a place for discipline and there is a time for discipline. But the part that I want you to see, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. You know how God makes us as children? We're, we're foolish. It's the parent's job to help us overcome that foolishness. It's the parent's job to teach us how to be wise, to grow up and be spiritually and mentally and emotionally healthy. That's the father's job. And so don't listen to all that talk that folks have said to you or that you're saying to yourself, if only I had done this, if only I had known this, if only I had acted this way. You were a child. You did what children do. You acted the way God made children. It was your father's responsibility to help you overcome foolishness so that you could grow up and be healthy. It was not your responsibility to act like an adult when you were a child. It was not your responsibility to somehow unnaturally come up with the wisdom to act like a healthy, mature adult when your father was acting like an immature child. It was not your responsibility to make him stop. In addition, you are not guilty because of your father's sin. Because so many who have dealt with these kind of issues hear all these things, why didn't you make him stop, and, and, and that sort of thing. And this is especially a problem for those who have been sexually abused. When, when they hear that the Scripture points out that sexual activity outside of marriage is a sin, they begin to believe that I am guilty because of what my father did. You're not guilty. When your father did these things to you, you weren't sinning. Now the Scripture 
The scripture doesn't deal specifically with sexual child abuse, but there is a principle in Deuteronomy chapter 22 that I think helps us understand this. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, beginning at verse 23, here's what God said under the old law. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. Now, first of all, we need to understand the concept of city is not like our idea of city. This is not saying, well, if it happened in the city limits of Franklin. We need to remember that the city was the idea of a walled city that had buildings that were all connected. There's tons of people in the city. They didn't have soundproof walls. The idea, if you were in the city, there was going to be somebody to hear. It's not like our cities today. So get that idea of your, out of your mind. But here's the thing that I want you to notice is that when the woman was attacked in such a way that she could not cry out, God said it wasn't her fault. She didn't do anything. The man attacked her. And just as it wouldn't be your fault if somebody came up and murdered you, and you wouldn't be guilty if somebody came up and murdered you, if your father did these awful, atrocious things to you, you were not guilty. You didn't do anything wrong. Your father sinned. You didn't. It's his fault, not yours. It was his responsibility to stop, not yours. You don't need to carry that shame. You did nothing of which to be ashamed. Your father did. Let that shame go. Now I do need to make what might be considered the one negative point of the sermon. The hardest part to share with you, and yet I think I have to tell you, and that is, is that your father's sins do not justify your sins. Your father's sins when you were a child do not justify your sins today. There's a very interesting statement made in Exodus chapter 20 when God gave the Ten Commandments. It's a little bit confusing. And in fact, sometimes seems to contradict with some other passages. But in Exodus chapter 20, in verse 5, it says, You shall not bow down to them, this is the idols, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Some folks have read this and believe this means that if a father is sinful then his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren will be punished for it, no matter how they behave. That's not what this passage is saying. What this passage is pointing out is that when the father, the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, if they're all committing the same sin, he's going, to get, he's going to punish them all the same. Because those who turn and love him, he shows steadfast love to what we actually see from this is not the idea that when the father has, when the wicked father has a son that obeys, which can happen, Ezekiel 18 points out. It's not saying when the son has a wicked father, when the wicked father has a son that's righteous, he's going to punish the son anyway. 
What it's saying is the sins of the fathers have a tendency to get passed on to the sons and the daughters. In fact, I've read one study this week that said that one-third of abused children go on to abuse their children. It's a terrible, terrible generational legacy that gets started. But the thing we need to understand that God says there is when the sons and daughters commit the same sins as the fathers, they also will be punished. Because the sins of our fathers don't justify our sins. And I want you to understand this in two arenas. The sins of your father do not justify your sins toward your father. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Even if the enemy was your father. Vengeance is God's. God will repay. You need to leave that up to God. Our job in relation to our fathers, no matter how they treated us, is to be at peace with them as much as is possible for us. If they gave evil to us, our job is to strive to give good to them back. I'm not saying this is easy. Please don't think I'm up here saying, hey, why aren't you doing this today? This is a growth process. I'm just pointing out that what the Bible demonstrates is that our father's sins do not justify ours. Our father's sins do not justify our sins against our father, and our father's sins do not justify our sins against others, and especially our children. You know, the regrettable problem is, is that so many of us, even when we didn't have just these, these awful, wicked parents, we sat back and there were things our parents did, and we said, I am not ever doing that. Anybody ever said that about what their parents did? And then, in that stressful situation, push comes to shove, our emotions and our mind are pushed to the limit, and we fall back on what we know. And what do we know? We know what our parents did. And then we say, I can't believe I've become my dad. Or I can't believe I've become my mom. We all do it. In some way or another. But here's the thing that we need to recognize. is The same passage that said we were not at fault for our father's sins says our father is not at fault for ours. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14, when it said, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But if He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This applies to us. No matter what influences we've had in our lives, our responsibility is to surrender to God. And be holy. We need to work on that no matter what's happening. And we can't justify our sins toward our children. We can't justify doing things toward our children that our Father did to us. Because just as it was wrong for Him to do it to us, it's wrong for us to do it to our children. And we can't sit there and justify and say, well, well, you've never had it as bad as I did, as if the fact that your father may have done something far worse than what you've done to your kids makes what you did okay. It just doesn't. Your father's sins don't justify your sins.
if your father treated you in this way? One of the very sad consequences is how hard it is to believe that you're lovable. One of the saddest consequences is that when you looked at your parents, the people who were most naturally supposed to be compassionate and caring and loving, and they used and abused you, the lesson you grow up learning is that nobody loves you. Powerful people don't love me. I can't be loved. And what's really sad is that generally translates into the way you view your God, your Heavenly Father. And how hard it is to believe that God loves you. It happens for two reasons. Number one, my parents didn't love me. How could God love me? And then number two, how could God let this happen to me? I understand those thoughts and feelings. But the thing that I do need you to understand and God wants you to understand is that God does, in fact, love you. God does love you. And when you're asking if God loves me, how could He let this happen to me? Here's what you need to understand. God's love gave you free will. And God, God's love gave your Father free will. And what free will automatically means is that people will sin. And what it means automatically when people will sin is that some people will be the victims of those sins. And what it means when God gave us the free will that people could sin and some people will be victims of sin, it just means that some of us are going to get hurt. But God's love is not demonstrated to you by taking away free will. God's love is not demonstrated to you by making sure that nobody ever gets hurt. God's love was demonstrated to you when He sent His Son to die for you so that your sins could be taken away. In Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's God's love. And because of His death, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 says, that Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. God's love was demonstrated in that He sent His Son to die for you so that you could go to heaven and have the imperishable, unfading glory of heaven. And in Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, Paul said this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, so your translation may say in us. glory of eternity that God's love gives us will so out 
shine any suffering that we've gone through. I know it's hard to see that now. And, and the one way that I illustrate this, and this is even, it, it's not the greatest illustration, it's just the best one I can come up with. Do you remember when you were a kid and things just seemed devastating? And you look back on them now and you think, I can't believe I was ever upset about that. Now that you've matured and you've grown, all those terrible suffering turmoils, and I'm, of course I'm not talking about the folks you're dealing with, what this lesson is about, but you know, you, you went to school and your girlfriend broke up with you and you just thought life was over. And now you look back on that and you think, well, I just can't imagine why I ever thought that was just such a big deal. As amazing as it is for you to believe it right now, when we get to heaven, we'll look back on all this suffering and feel that exact same way. Now that we're in heaven, we'll look back on all that and we'll say that suffering was nothing compared to the glory we have through God in heaven. I know, I don't expect you to believe me about that right now. I'm just telling you, that's what Scripture says. Secondly, if you believe that powerful people just can't love you, but instead they want to use and abuse you, I want you to remember what it says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. Anyone who does not know love does not know God, because God is love. Psalm 36. Psalm 36 talks about the love of God. In Psalm 36 and verse 5 it says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heaven, your faithfulness to the clouds. Verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. God does love you. And even if you can't fully believe that right now, and there's this part of you that's saying, I just can't believe that, just remind yourself of that. It's what it says over and over again in Scripture. God is love. God loves you. God sent His Son to die for you because God loves you. Just tell yourself that over and over again because that's what God says. He does love And His love doesn't say that nothing bad will ever happen to you. His love says that He'll take you by the hand and carry you through it and bring you out to heaven on the other side. That's what God's love says. And the final thing that I want to share with you is that you can take refuge in God. If you went through this as a child, what probably happened is you turned to isolation and you turned inward. You learned quickly how to follow the rules in order to try to keep out of trouble. You didn't tell anybody about it, goodness knows, because you were so ashamed, even though it wasn't you. It was a dark little secret. The elephant in the room that everybody was dancing around. You learned not to trust anybody. And because of that, you find it hard to trust God. And you did all kinds of things to try to deal with the turmoil and the pain that was going on on the inside. You may have turned to sins to medicate. Drugs, alcohol, lust, sex, gambling, gluttony, raging. Any kind of thing that you might have done to medicate because at least it made you feel better for a little while. You may have taken the idea of, of, of demonstrating self-confidence because you had so little control at home, you tried to exert control every place else, so you brought this false bravado and this, this false confidence and this pride and this arrogance. Maybe even religious legalism 
to show that you could be in control. Or maybe you just went the other way and decided if I can't be in control, why bother? And so you just gave yourself over to sin because, hey, I'm bad anyway, why even try? But there's another option. There's another option. The option that either I have to have absolute control or I just can't be in any control, so why bother trying? Those aren't the options. The one true option is take refuge in God. Psalm 27 and verse 10. And I love the way the English Standard says this. Psalm 27 and verse 10 says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. The Lord can be your refuge. Psalm 18. Psalm 18, beginning at verse 1, the Scripture there says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I'll call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. You can lean on God. God will carry you through. You can't control your life, but God can. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. If you'll just, instead of trying to exert all that control, just give that control over to Jesus. Let Him live through. Don't try to make your decisions. Let Jesus make your decisions. Don't try to figure out what you're going to do. Just let Jesus tell you what to do. Give your life over to Him. Let Him be in control. That doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy all the time. But it does mean that you can grow and have health spiritually, emotionally, physically. Trust me. You will not ever overcome what your father did to you. You will not ever be able to have healthy relationships. You will not ever be able to have control of your life until you surrender to God and take refuge in Him. Let Him be your rock and your deliverer and your refuge, your shepherd and your God. And all those other things will start happening. I hope that I'm not talking to very many of you here this morning. And yet I can't help but imagine that in a room of about 150 people, that means we have 150 children here. I know I'm talking to somebody. And I want you to know that we are so sorry that you've been through that. And we're here to help you in any way that we can. And we want you to know that God loves you. And so do we.